happened like in that area today. And there's a lot about Jesus as our high priest again, which I taught on that a little bit uh, two weeks ago. And then in between that, so let's just start here. Let's just start there. Back in chapter 5, we got to read a little bit about not only is Jesus our high priest, but he starts to talk about this order of Melchizedek thing that's kind of interesting and, and wild. And in the midst of having these conversations about Jesus' priesthood, high priesthood, and Melchizedek, he pauses and talks about what Greg said last week. And I think that that's a good place to start because we have to pick back up because he's going, man, he's the great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And he goes, hold up a second. Y'all are kind of dull, like in your thinking. <laughs> like that—that that was that's that's strong language that he that he used, and said uh, even more stronger. Stronger. He's like, let's pause for a second, because listen, y'all should be teachers. Um, you should know, you know, be able to follow along with where I'm going and whatnot, and become teachers. But instead, you're you should be the mother. Instead, you're the child, right? Like you should be the one that's able to teach and grow and help others along. But as a Instead, we are, they were uh, as children. And I do think that it's worth us pausing just a moment to consider that again in our lives. Because, I, you know, whenever we just hear it one time, it's easy to kind of brush it off. Or uh, I think Matt Wendelboer, he's not here. He says something about, well, maybe I can do it for two days. And then I, you know, it really impacts me and something happens practically in my life. But I think this is really important because I, I would say the broad church and popular Christianity I mean, I think that we could probably say that's a pretty accurate um, encouragement, uh, rebuke, I don't, whatever you want to call it, that many, many people as part of the church, man, you should be able to teach. And whenever he, whenever they, whenever he says that, that doesn't mean, like, I think sometimes we get this idea that you have to be up front in a group and teaching like this. But if you look back and you think about the way the Hebrew people taught Torah to one another, in Deuteronomy, it talks about like parents teaching it as they walk, in their homes, as you sit, as you lie down. That It was a communal teaching. You understand that? Like grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, people that are part of the family, uh, the community, you, we, they were called to teach the young people and to grow and to teach one another. Like this was part of daily life. And so we have to ask ourselves, where are we at on that? Like I think that's a really great question. Can we teach? Can we help? Are we encouraging? Are we stirring one another up? Are we able to teach our children and those? Or are we still like struggling with, man, I, I don't, man, I think I know the basics. Because not only is it challenging, or it very important is the right word, I'm sorry, for us to walk in that together for the sake of others, also he kind of moves from that into this idea of falling away. In this idea that if you were to leave that baby alone, man, that what are the odds that that baby will survive? Not very high. If you will leave a teenager or a full-blown adult alone in the woods or wherever, there's a good chance. Not that they couldn't, something couldn't happen to them. I know people who know the word very well, follow Jesus a long time, and give up the faith at some point in time because of yeah, X, Y, or Z. But there is a danger in us deciding not only for ourselves but for others in just staying stagnant, you know, and saying, well, becoming sluggish uh, in our approach to this. Because this is real, man. This is real life. This is, 
this is serious stuff. I know, sorry, kind of getting serious and <laughs> right off the bat, but it really is, it is. And so when we dive into this today and we start looking at it and we have this uh, switch that we want to, well, tune it out maybe, or like, oh man, I'm not sure about what's going on here. But we don't just do this for this morning, but we develop a lifestyle where we get a hunger for this kind of stuff, where we get a hunger to dive deep and not only to get the knowledge, absolutely, but then to live it out. Because uh, when Greg was teaching the last week, it says, um, it talks about us being able to discern good and evil. Like, what are we putting into practice through what we're learning? Those things are vitally important for us. And I do think that places like here that we definitely have, many of us have a great hunger for the Lord and for his word and for understanding and walking that out. But I just want to encourage us again, like, it's, it is easy to just kind of get in our boat and let it float off, you know? Um, it takes time. It takes discipline. It takes us really caring to us go, no, I, I, for the sake of others, my family, my extended family, my church family, for the sake of my own self, we're arrogant if we think that we're just, there's no way that we can't be deceived. Like, that's, that's I, I, I don't know. I think that's an arrogant way to think. But rather to go, no, let's dive, let's get our roots deeper Let's mature, let's grow, let's eat solid food so that we can be able to weather difficult times, storms, challenging thoughts, and different things like that. And so I think that that's really important background for where we're headed today. I want to also read the end of what Greg read last week, um, because I think it segues right into his, some people even put verse 12 with 13, um, but I'm going to read chapter 6, verse 11. Uh, I think that's uh, that's just where we'll start. Yeah, okay. And we want each one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the very end. Meaning there's a possibility of not realizing the full assurance of hope. Like there's something that we need to do and he desires them deeply as God would desire us deeply to do the same so that you may not become sluggish. And this is that that is this is the one of the challenges that they're having they've become kind of dull and sluggish and and he's calling them to be imitators not you may not become sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises next slide please oh awesome who has read around the world in 80 days by jules verne we have some yeah I didn't know there's a BBC adaptation that just came out like a year or two in 2021 with David Tennant, who I really like, so now I want to go watch that. Um, but in this book, I read it pretty recently, a few months ago. This guy in the middle, Mr. Fogg, is very particular. Is that funny? Is his name funny? <laughs> Finny, yep. About 80 days ago. That's, that actually might be accurate, John. So I should have thought about that. <laughs> it probably was something like that. <laughs> Mr. Fogg lives a life that is very uh, structured. He likes his things a certain way. He does the same thing every single day. He likes his water that he shaves with an exact precise temperature. He likes his tea an exact way. And so this guy is doing the same thing the same way every day. He likes punctuality, all these things. And all of a sudden, he decides in a bet that he makes with some of his friends for 20,000 pounds that he's going to make it all the way around the world in 80 days. Um, for us, that sounds easy. 
we have commercial airlines and whatnot. In their time, not so easy. And his friends even like said, hey, you know, what if the trains don't run on the schedule? What if something doesn't happen? You know, and there's problems. He's like, I've got all that worked out. I, I know I can do it. I can do this thing in 80 days. And I will tell you the end if you haven't read it. Um, yeah, I won't. It's a good ending. It's, it actually is a, I really like the ending to this. Um, but the point, why are you bringing this up, John? The point that I like to make is we just read that he did not want them to become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We in a kind of popular Christianity have a, I think, a, a hyper focus to a flaw on the beginning of the journey. Now, it was a tremendous decision for Mr. Fogg to go out of his lifestyle that was very meticulous and ordered in a certain way for him to decide to go on this wild journey. That was an incredibly important decision. But just as important in that decision is the trials and the challenges and the things that hit him as he's trying to go around the world in his determination to have faith and patience to see it through. You see, when I read Paul and the Hebrew writer and Jesus himself, James, there's a strong focus on us staying steadfast, on encouraging the believers to stay the course, to finish the race. And I want us to Man, to do that to one another, to recognize that the beginning is important. The time whenever we decide that we're going to follow Jesus is an incredibly important decision. But just as important is the day-in and day-out decision to continue to follow him. Is a day-in and day-out decision to continue to eat solid food and learn how to grow and to get roots and to grow and to mature. And all of this is, I believe, floating around as he's talking to them. Don't become sluggish. Don't become dull. Have that discipline. Focus on the Lord. Read. Go deeper. Live it out. Learn how to discern good and evil. And then verse 13 is kind of where we start. If you want to go to the next slide. So he's told them to imitate. And then he gives an example of incredible patience. Verse 13, he says in chapter 6, When God made a promise to Abraham because he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently endured, obtained the promise. Though we didn't see the fullness of the promise, and the Hebrew writer will talk about that in a few more chapters. But put yourself in Abraham and Sarah's shoes. I know we've done this before, but let's do it again. God gives you a promise. He says, I will surely multiply you. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed, Abraham and Sarah, through your seed. That's a lot of excitement. You hear that from God, you're like, man, we have not been able to have children, but thank you, God. We get that. That sounds awesome. And like for the first couple months, you're just like, man, God's going to do this. I can't wait. This is incredible. And then like six months come and you go, what's, I wonder, all right, God, you said that we're going to, the earth is going to be blessed through a seed. A year goes by and you're like, well, you still got, still got hope. Just, all right, God, we're cool. Two years comes. Three years comes. What happens when five years hits and you're in your shoes? This is what happened. Do you start to waver? Like, are you like, God, um, I thought that you said that we were going to have a child and that, you know, what about 10 years? It took 25 years. So imagine at 20 years, there's probably this faint possible hope 
in the back of our mind, well, maybe God could do it. You're now getting pretty old. <laughs> Beyond childbearing years. I mean, it's like, man, we're getting up there. He uses this example to encourage the Hebrew, the people that he is writing to, and us, that would be us, to have that type of faith and patience in our walk with God. That is a strong challenge. Very strong. Because it's easy. I mean, I'm telling you, I don't, I don't, I don't love patience. I think I'm learning to like it the older I get a little bit. Like, I think I'm learning to appreciate it a lot more. <laughs> but he's saying imitate people like Abraham. Imitate people like Sarah who were promised from God and made a promise. And though, hey, they tried to help God out a little bit, right? Wouldn't we all probably have done the same thing? Really? I mean, we would have done something with modern medicine to try to help God along if this was the case, right? I mean, I'm sure I would absolutely have done it and all that kind of stuff. But even though they did that, God still remained faithful. He still did what he said he would do, even when it didn't come on that same, that timeline that them or us or any of us would probably uh, have desired. Go to the next slide. I actually changed the title of my sermon. I didn't know what to call it, so I just put what Greg had as what we're going to do. I think Christ something. Uh, I'm, I'm going to call this our great hope because I think that the idea that we're going to get to of Christ as our high priest, even in context here of conversations about this idea that the people of God through Abraham are going to bless the entire world. The Hebrew writer is going to encourage them to hold on. Well, let's just read it. Um, let me read verse 17 in chapter 6. In the same way, when God desired to show even more clearly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it by an oath. So that through two unchangeable things, which it is impossible that God would prove false, we who have taken refuge might be strongly encouraged to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I'll stop here for just a second. There's this interesting dynamic I, I've wrestled with this inside and been thinking about how there's this idea of patiently waiting on God, but yet also the Hebrew writer saying it doesn't mean that we do nothing. Maybe we don't try to do what Abraham and Sarah did and Ishmael takes place, but there's an encouragement for them to seize, to lay hold of the hope, right? That it's not, so it's not totally passive, and yet it's important that they lay hold. And again, what is this hope? I think it's what he's been talking about. You know, he initially here is talking about God's promise, again, for the people of the earth to bless. What our hope is really affects our lifestyle and walk as believers. If our hope is to get saved and to go to heaven, and that's about it, that's how we'll kind of live our life out, right? Like, what's the point of studying and reading and living out and loving my neighbor? You know, David has talked about this morning. What's the, kind of the point? Maybe we can get some others that are going to get saved. I guess we'll jump people on a lifeboat and we'll rescue a few folks. 
But what if our hope is that God actually has a plan to set everything right in the world? What if our hope is that when he promised Abraham something several thousand years ago, that through his family, and as Gentiles we are grafted in, we are part of the family, (laughs) through his family there was going to be blessing to the entire earth. What if our hope has to deal with Jesus, as we're going to get to, as our high priest? As the one who allows us, we'll get to, to actually live and to dwell in the presence of God? What if our hope is centered on him and what he's accomplished? What if our hope is us being invited into what he's doing now? He says that if we take hold, he strongly encourages them to take hold of this hope, and he says that this is actually what anchors us. This is what, I mean, we don't, back in their culture, this would make a whole lot more sense because they're riding ships and boats all the time and they understand what's going on. We don't ride too many unless it's a cruise ship, you know, and then we don't, I don't know if we see the anchor much or I guess we might do right before we go off. I rode a bass boat around, you know, a little bit. And when the water got flowing, I usually would use my trolling motor, but when it got flowing too much, I would have to toss the anchor down sometimes because, like, I want to throw in that spot right over there. But knowing that the anchor is what stops you from the boat from drifting into going wherever it can go. The encouragement is, is that we lay hold of and understand this hope. And as we lay hold of that hope and we live that hope out, it stops us from just going here, there, it stops us from going to any, this doctrine, or that doctrine, to something crazy. And, but it's all centered on Jesus and God and his promise and his kingdom. It's important. It's important. And then he says something that's really wild. Uh, in verse 19 again, we have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Then he says, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain Where Jesus, next slide please, a forerunner on our behalf has entered, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's not the color of the temple curtains. This was the the picture I just, just emotionally made me think about. But he's saying that this hope that we have that anchors our soul actually also causes us to do something risky, wild. (laughs) Because we didn't, we don't live in the day and age whenever the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. One person in all of Israel once a year goes into the Holy of Holies. We would have no chance. It just wouldn't be an issue. We're Gentiles, most of us. But even if we're Israelites, we wouldn't probably have the chance either. Even if we were, you know, we're not even Levites. If we were Levites, maybe, you know, maybe there's a chance. But the Hebrew writer is saying something wild that the people of God, because of what Jesus did when he was high priest, he actually writes that Jesus enters in not only to this earthly place where the um, Ark of the Covenant was, he's going to make an argument later that he entered into heaven itself. That's why I kind of have that picture. Jesus enters into heaven itself to stand before God and says that the hope that we have ought to have us trust him enough to actually go behind the curtain as well to stand before the presence of God. I'm not sure that I totally understand the weight of how deep that is. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. I know I don't understand the weight of how deep that is. 
but I want to wrestle with it, and I want to try <laughs> to understand what does it mean to live in a place where we, where Jesus is standing as, you know, as our intercessor, Jesus is standing as our high priest, and we're in that presence. I don't want to take that lightly. I don't want to take lightly because it's so. It's easy to take lightly the reality that. God put his spirit in us, right? Like we are, we can commune with God because of the Holy Spirit. And many of us have grown up and, and that's just part of what it meant when we gave our surrender to Jesus or whatever. But I mean, just think about these people hearing things like this. This is wild. <laughs> I, can, I can go behind the curtain. I can be in the presence. I can commune with God. I don't need a priest. I don't need an intermediary besides Jesus who brought me once for all time before the Lord. It's, it's wild. It's incredible. Um, let's go to the next slide. And I'm going to show this short video because um, Greg had actually mentioned... Hold up. Can you pause it for a second? Can you pause it for a second? Okay. Got a little excited about watching the video? That's, <laughs> that's on me. Can you, can, you, can you all turn some of the lights down a little bit? Now, as, as, as you're doing that, like, I just want to make mention, uh, Greg had mentioned something about, like, we hear a lot about high priest, but what really is the high priest role? This isn't the best video for this. Like, it's a good video, but it's something. And I think I don't want to go, the next argument's going to be, the rest of this chapter, or section is, Jesus is a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And I, if we just go there, we're going to be like, yeah, but what does that mean? What does it mean that he's high priest, right? Um, so this will kind of talk about, our priesthood and then Jesus' priesthood and what he's accomplished. I think it's a pretty good video. So let's check this out.
All right. That's pretty good, huh? I wonder how many times we're going to play this video today. <laughs> Can you all turn the lights on, too, whenever you get the chance? Already on it. Thank you. Um, what a great hope. <laughs> uh, the story is just is beautiful. And we see those continual echoes back to uh, throughout the Old Testament, e Exodus. And we're going to read in the Psalms that he's, again, here, that he's been quoting over and over. And even in the video, it references those things. Um, but how incredible is it that this is a big deal, what the Hebrew writer is saying. This idea that Jesus as high priest challenged the authority of the day, this idea that Jesus as high priest is one of the reasons that he was killed, like this is, this was, this is big time stuff. And think about him writing these things in the midst of writing to certain, to, to people and no doubt that there were people who had decided to follow the way and could be Judaizers. You know there's different things that were taking place to say you need to anchor yourself on this idea that he is high priest. <laughs> like there, again, there's an easy temptation for just to, to drift away from some of this and to maybe go, well, maybe he wasn't that. He did, he was a great rabbi, but maybe, maybe that's not, but he's, no, this, this is, this is where we find our anchor. This is what actually keeps us going. And he's actually the forerunner for us to enter in. So, the story of Melchizedek, uh, I'll just briefly tell it. I know that uh, we did um, a couple weeks ago, but in Genesis 14, Abraham rescues Lot, he wins this battle, and there's this mysterious figure that shows up, this Melchizedek, um, who Abraham decides to give a tenth of all the spoils to. They have bread and wine. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And it's really not that long of a passage. But in the Psalms, in this Hebrew writer, there's some interesting things that they pull out of this. And it's, it's, it's incredible. Go to the next slide. He is going to make four, most four arguments. Next slide. Thank you. Um, around, four, around four arguments for the greatness of who Melchizedek is. We keep reading about something great, like angels and Jesus, far greater. You know, uh, Moses, but Jesus, far greater, right? So this writer, uh, the Hebrew writer, loves greater and better. Like, we see that over and over and over and over throughout this, uh, this letter. And right now, he's going to end up, after he says a few things, he's going to say, see how great he is? So right now, he's going to discuss, and again, have, I think, four arguments for discussing how great Melchizedek is. And this is why it's important that we learn how to chew and eat solid food, because this is kind of this is kind of deep stuff. And the first argument I think is brilliant, and it's deep, because he begins by saying, "Listen, when Abraham had that spoil, and Melchizedek comes and greets him, Abraham gives a tenth of that spoil to Melchizedek." But let's go deeper than that. Who was in? Abra who is Abraham's seed? Eventually, that's right, the Levites, the, royal, the, the, the priesthood that's, that's actually you know, taking place, unless the temple's been destroyed, but has at least been taking place um, during this time. They know what's going on. This, this Levitical priesthood has been doing its thing. It is the centerpiece of their faith. I mean, this really is the temple and the Levitical priesthood. 
and he says that because Abraham would birth through his seed, the Levites, in a sense, the Levites, who are the ones who collected the tithe, do you guys remember that? So like if we were part of Israel, we would give our tithe to the Levites. We would help with the temple and um, their duties and all these different things like that. So he says, but listen here, because they were in Abraham's uh, seed, loins, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> they gave, in a sense, a tenth to a greater priesthood. Because they gave a tenth to this Melchizedek, this priest. Really interesting, and really, I think, a brilliant argument. Who really thought. He goes on to then say that Melchizedek's name and who he is as king of righteousness and king of peace, he was the king of Salem, who many, many people believe that that's short for Jerusalem and that he was, this is a king of peace, a king of righteousness before Jerusalem to come out and meet him. Then he goes to the, a quick argument about the fact that Melchizedek blesses Abraham and the superior always blesses the inferior, is what he's saying. Abraham, and think about this, y'all. Abraham is the father of these people. Like, this is where it all started. Everything started with God giving a promise to Abraham. That's why his discussion and use of him as, like, an idea of patient inheritance, like receiving the inheritance with patience and the promises of patience, it's really brilliant writing because he goes, he's like, let's use Abraham as an example, which segues really great into this conversation that we're going to have about Melchizedek and also reminding people Abraham was great, 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 but there's somebody greater. And then finally, he talks, he uses an argument from silence to talk about the eternal nature of this Melchizedek. You know, whenever we're reading through the scriptures and it says this person begat, this person begat, that person, the genealogies, and we're like, oh man, yeah. And so he uses this argument from silence and no one talks about where he's from. We have no idea where he's from. We have no idea where it ends. And so he says, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Like he, that's, that's his, it's an interesting argument, but it's, it's what he's saying. People wrestle with who Melchizedek is. Some believe that he was an angel. Some believe he was Jesus ahead of time. I tend to believe he was just a king that kind of foreshadowed what was going to happen. Who knows? I don't, we can, I don't think we can know super strongly one way or the other, but it's an interesting topic to look at and to study. Can you go to the next slide, please? The next thing that he does... <clears throat> Sorry, I got something caught in my throat. Give me a second. Let me drink a little coffee. <clears throat> there we go. The next thing that he does after talking about the greatness of Melchizedek and therefore his priesthood is he begins to talk about the Levitical priesthood and ask some questions for the folks that are listening. The first question is in chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for the people received the law under this priesthood, what further need would there have been to speak of another priest arising according to the order of Melchizedek rather than the one according to the order of Aaron? I think this is brilliant argument. I, I, I like thoughts of what he's saying. Let's turn to Psalm 110. I want to ask someone other than myself so we can have participation, read the entire psalm for us. Anybody want to read it? Not everyone at once. 
All right, thank you. <clears throat> Psalm 110. Ariel, I'll bring you a microphone so that we can hear it. But as I'm bringing this, he's going to make this argument that <clears throat> if the Levitical priesthood were perfect, if there were nothing wrong with it, if it helped Israel to actually attain the perfection of God, then why in the world, while the Levitical priesthood is actually taking place, is there this reference to another priesthood? So I, would, I like to read the whole thing because there's a lot of his argument throughout the whole psalm. So just read Psalm 110. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In the holy splendor from the womb of dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to, uh, to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. The Lord at your right hand, he will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road, and therefore he will lift up his head. Am I on now? There we go. I didn't want to be breathing heavy or something weird while she was reading. Like, <sighs> no, just you know. So he's already referenced this psalm multiple times. There's this idea in Psalm 110 that there is this person who David said to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand." This kingly figure that, again, we've talked about this a couple weeks ago. That is also a priestly figure, which, besides Melchizedek, there isn't a pattern for a king-priest figure. Uh, we, I shared how uh, Saul decided he wanted to act like a priest, and when he acted like a priest, even though he was the king of Israel, God said, the whole kingdom is being ripped out of you. This is not the way it goes. And so this really this brilliant argument that he makes is, while the Levitical priesthood is in full swing, and the Levitical priesthood is doing its thing, why in the world, if that was going to reach perfection, does the psalmist say there's someone else coming? There is this kingly, priestly figure that's coming from the order of Melchizedek. You get it? Like, what's the point? What's, if this was such a perfect priesthood, why is there another priesthood? I think this is why he says, let's, let's eat some solid food. Like, this is a lot to kind of think about and digest and meditate on, isn't it? Like, there's a lot here. You can go to the, the last slide. Uh, sorry. Yeah, there you go. There's Jesus, I guess. I just like the style of art. <clears throat> so with all these things that he's saying, he's making the argument that Jesus has stood before God, that as our high priest, he also will write, that he also has written that he stands to make intercession for us, and that he has established a new priesthood other than Levi, which again, if we're back there listening to this, this is either truth or complete blasphemy. <laughs> but it's truth. And this is why he's telling them this may sound wild. It may sound different. To, you, know, you may have people that are saying, what are, you, what are you thinking, Greg? I don't know. 
But this is the anchor for everything. This is the anchor for our beliefs. He is the anchor for it all. He is one we have no way. The people of Israel could not present themselves before God by themselves. They, all, they had a representative. The people could not take away their own sins. He argues, he says, the Levitical priesthood, even the priest died, right? And a new priest would come, and a new priest would come, and a new priest would come, and year after year after year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But then once for all time, this high priest comes before God, offers himself as a sacrifice, and he has a priesthood because of the power of an indestructible life, because he has died and now resurrected, he cannot die. Impossible for him to die. Isn't that all? Man, that gets me jacked up. It is impossible for him to die. And that's why his priesthood will remain forever. And if we want to look at our lives, as the movie, the video said, we are invited to be priests, to like operate as priests. God desired that all the way back in Exodus. Didn't we read that? He said, he desired them to be a kingdom of priests before God. But the only reason we can do it is because he's already been the forerunner. He's the high priest. We're not the high. But we get to take that hope that God has given us and actually begin now, as the video showed, to participate in that for this world. It's a lot. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to ponder on. It's a lot to think about what does that mean for the world. And I could preach for hours on thinking about what does that mean for us in our lives and for our city and for creation, for whatever. But it's something that we should ponder. It's something that we should wrestle with and have conversations about and hold on and encourage one another. Father, thank you for, um, man, this incredible truth. I just, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help it to do its work in us this morning. Um, because there's definite, definitely times where I'm reading through this going, I know I'm not even really scratching the surface. I don't think of how serious this is, how deep this is, how practical it is for us to, to, <clears throat> to live out this reality that Jesus is before you as high priest, representing us. Um, man, of all that he's accomplished and that we're invited to participate in his mission, it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a lot and it's beautiful. I pray, Father, that you would help us to, uh, as Greg said last week, that you would help us to, to gain an appetite um, for these deep things these in your word that are beautiful, that help to anchor our soul, that help us to, uh, as we chew on them and eat them, grow and mature. And um, yeah, I, I, I just pray that we would, as we do this, that, that, we would, <clears throat> that we would become great teachers, that the Hebrew writer encouraged them to become that we would teach our children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews and those, Lord, who are in our lives and that we would continue to stir one another up and to, to, to grow together. And uh, we love you. We thank you that we can do none of this, none of this without you. Without our forerunner, Jesus, we're, we're helpless. We're completely helpless, but we thank you that you have graced us to empower us to do some good in this world because you have um, pioneered the way. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Amen.